Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 154. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast, coming at you from Lafayette, California, with a fresh cup of coffee in my hand. This is episode number 154 you are listening to. Yep, just back from Colorado after Thanksgiving and uh, spent some time there with uh, with family. And uh, as a result of my trip there, my guest today is Mr. James Tuttle, who's based just outside of Boulder, Colorado. James is a is a recording and mix engineer and producer with about 40 years in the trenches, and he's worked with everyone from Carol King and Dan Fogelberg, Joe Ely, Big Head Todd and the Monsters. He's a two-time Grammy nominee, and he currently is the chief recording engineer at E-Town, which is a syndicated radio show and podcast where he's been for the last 20 years. Uh, James Taylor, Mumford & Sons, Los Lobos, Michael Fronte, Lyle Levitt, Imogene Heap, Ricky Lee Jones. I could just keep going and going and going. It's it's a pretty long list. Oh, I got to mention Emmy Lou Harris because you can't leave Emmy Lou Harris out. Uh, but he's worked with uh, all those folks and many, many more. And I met up with James in, in Colorado um, because uh, he actually emailed me and said, hey, I heard you were going to be in Colorado. Do you want to get together and have a cup of coffee? And I thought, coffee? Let's do an interview. This guy has quite a background. So uh, we conducted our interview from a, a local coffee shop, and uh, I can't think of a better place, really. So, yeah, James Tuttle coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. All right, so you might have heard of these net neutrality laws that are being challenged recently, and um, I want to talk about that. I think it's a bipartisan thing. I don't think it's a political thing. I think it's a policy-oriented thing. And if you're a citizen of the United States, I think it's it's rather important. So hear me out. Chairman Ajit Pai is, uh, he is the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, the, uh, the FCC. He was uh, appointed in 2012 by President Barack Obama, and President Donald Trump, of course, uh, made him the chairman of the board in January of 2017. So, in 2015, there were some laws put into place called net neutrality laws. And, you know, long and short of it is, is uh, it prevents the ISPs, uh, the service providers from blocking, manipulating, slowing down, whatever you want to do to manipulate the data, it prevents them from doing that. So, you know, let's say that you like Netflix and one of the service providers happens to own Hulu. Uh, well, it prevents them from uh, slowing down Netflix and speeding up uh, Hulu. That's a, that's a basic example. Or, you know, let's say that you have a, uh, a politically challenging podcast, maybe, or, or website that you uh, like to visit, and uh, the service provider that you have doesn't agree with that. They can, you know, without these net neutrality laws, they can block that. So the net neutrality laws were put into place to kind of, you know, prevent these types of situations. So Chairman Pai and two other members of the board, there were a total of five members, they would like to do away with these net neutrality laws. A little background on Chairman Pai, he used to uh, work for Verizon. Well, to me, that's a conflict of interest. And this proposal to get rid of the net neutrality laws, I find uh very troubling. So I'm not going to tell you how to think, but for me, uh, this is not a good thing that we should be doing. So what I've been doing is, is I've been emailing, calling, and uh, sending out tweets, making my voice heard, along with many others. If, if you type in hashtag net neutrality into Twitter, you will come up with quite a barrage of uh, people making their comments known. So my ask of you today is to uh, Google it, find out more about it, form your own opinion. I, I certainly don't want to state that there is only one opinion. Some people feel that if you take those laws away, that there can be more competition. And uh, I'm all for healthy competition, but I am certainly not in favor of ISPs having the freedom to give us an internet that is limited by their own ideas. 
I would like to have just an open internet where we can all just be innovative and create podcasts and blogs and YouTube channels and come up with ideas that really uh, make the internet what it is. So once again, check out net neutrality, uh, just Google it. And I'm sure you can educate yourself fully on the topic. So one final thought, if you do decide that you would like to leave a message or tweet uh, any type of information to uh, Chairman Pai or any member of the Federal Communications Commission, I would strongly encourage you to do so in a respectful way. It's very easy to let loose with your emotions about the situation and say some very awful things. I definitely have seen some tweets to those guys that I thought, <laughs> that's crossing the line, man. But um, yeah, if you want to make your voice heard, do so, but do so in a respectful way uh, would be my advice. So there. Do want to remind you that uh, our friends over at Universal Audio are still running their uh, their promotion where you buy an Apollo rack, you get a free UAD2 satellite where you got to buy and register any new Apollo rack mount interface uh, through December 31st, 2017, and you'll get a UAD2 satellite octo or quad DSP accelerator absolutely free. So make sure you check that out at uaudio.com. Also be sure and stop over to gearsluts.com where we are sponsoring the Audio Life subform. And uh, if you'd like to continue some discussions that are not generally uh, focused on gear and rather on life and lifestyle of the audio professional, just like we do here on Working Class Audio, then I would encourage you to stop by and check that out. So, uh, yeah, let's go to Colorado to a coffee shop and have a good conversation here with James Tuttle here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So here we are at a coffee shop in Colorado. Uh, welcome to the podcast, James. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. You know, we've been chatting here for a little bit prior to starting the recording. So why don't we why don't we start now and work our way in reverse? So currently, where are you at? I live outside of Boulder, Colorado. Work in Boulder, Colorado primarily. Uh, my main affiliation is with a syndicated radio program called E-Town. This broadcast on a little over 300 stations around the country and the world, and also podcast and uh, do a series of videos, which I just looked the other day to see. We only started the videos of five, six years ago, and we're up to 1,300 already. It's a lot of content. It's a lot of content. Yeah, it's a lot. We do, you know, it's a, it's a two to two and a half hour show that becomes an, an hour radio show with four, five, or six videos from every show. There's a website, etown.org. .org, uh-huh, right. etown.org. The pictures of the facility look amazing. Yeah, through the nonprofit that runs Etown, we purchased an old church building in downtown Boulder that was originally built in 1923 and kind of added onto incrementally over the years. And they uh, repurposed it into a, uh, uh, a suite of offices and a suite of production rooms for uh, working on the show and a, a beautiful little 220-seat concert hall. And yeah. a, a beautiful recording studio on the back side of the building. Interesting. And, and if I'm correct, I think you said in your email from our initial discussion, you've been with E-Town for 20 years. Yeah, they've been on the air for 26 years, and I've been with them a little over 20 years. So is their content prior to the internet been available as like a syndicated radio show? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's been on the air and, and carried by many. It's usually in NPR stations. There are a few commercial stations that carry it also. And everyone has their own, uh, you know, they actually broadcast it whenever it's convenient to fit into their time slots. So now with the Internet in its current state, are the videos and the audio available online? They're online. Yeah, there's great Facebook links to them. YouTube has their own thing. And I think Vimeo even has like, you know, the E-Town channel on there. So you can go to any of those places and and find links to all the video stuff. So what is your role there? What, what do you do, essentially? I've been kind of the chief recording engineer okay. for a long time, and I still deal with all recording and then remixing all the music that is on the show. There's a separate engineer that comes in and puts together the final two-track edit of the show because there's a lot of conversation, a lot of small edits. Like I said, it's a two-and-a-half-hour live show that becomes you know, an hour of broadcast time. So it's got to be get nipped in the tuck very carefully to fit that I think it's 59 minutes, 55 seconds, you know, is it's, it's got to hit it on the nose every time. So, wow. yeah, it's uh, there's no no wiggle room there. They're on to the next thing. Is this a, a salary job or an hourly job? No, I just work for them, an hourly thing. It was a 
contract basis. Yeah, okay. it's just always worked out like that. It, I, I do a lot of other work on my own, working on projects with other friends and, and people around. So I just work out the schedule with them. We know when the shows are coming up mm. and we record the shows and then set up a, a production schedule for finishing them up afterwards. Do you have a hand in or say in the purchases that are made, how the facility is set up, et cetera? As far as the gear, yeah. I, I got to help in a large way. So it's kind of my, my little wish list of, of nice stuff in the studio there. It, within reason and you know, then what we kind of needed for the main centerpiece for the studio, we had to have something that we could handle a lot of faders. We needed to be able to do, you know, 48 track recording, hands-on faders, live mix, and short of buying a giant large format console, which just didn't add up at the time, just mm. we decided to do a controller. So we did it and have a D command for that. And then just had a huge rack of beautiful mic pre's. A lot of Grace Prees in there. Oh, of course. Primarily. We're, we're in Colorado. Our homeboys. Home of Grace. Yeah. And some other stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it's a nice little set of gear. And then are you in charge of bringing in outside engineers as well? Uh, yeah. We have a, a small staff of people that you know all know the room and I'll orient someone new if they want to work in the room because it's also available commercially, you know, when there's time um, for other people to come in. Really? Oh, yeah. So you yeah, can rent that space? Oh, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, and it's, uh, like I was telling you earlier, it's it's an old basketball gym. So it's one really big room with a super high ceiling. Um, Sam Burkow was involved in designing not only the studio, but the whole E-Town Hall. I don't know if you know Sam that well, but great acoustician. And and to be clear, because I think we're leaving this aspect out, is that the basket, the, the original basketball court, court. or gym was yeah. behind the church. It was, behind, yeah, it was built on the backside of the church. It's kind of like their recreation area, I guess, okay. or something. But it gave us a, a wonderful space to work with. So is then the church, the original church footprint, is that the live area? That's the that's the the hall. Okay. Yeah. And there's a full downstairs basement underneath that, which is kind of like the, the cafe area. There's a little box office down there and an area to get refreshments. They, they've got a license to serve beer and wine there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they also do small like uh, songwriter nights downstairs in the cafe. Do you think that there's a community around E-Town? Very much so. And that's the whole I think vision behind it, Nick really wanted to create something that was kind of a, for the building specifically, a community resource because they have all kinds of events. So they have community meetings there. They have independent film screenings there. They do CD release parties there, all kinds of different stuff. And it really functions in a lot of different ways to support the community. But it's, and it's an entertainment center of Boulder. It's one of them. Yeah. There's some other grid really good venues in town, mm -hmm. but it, it really works great for a certain size event. For those that are old enough to remember uh, Mork and Mindy with Robin Williams and Pam Dauber, I think her name was. Anyways, I think that that was, that was originally based, like it was supposed to be in Boulder. It's, it, it's literally right around the corner of me, Town Hall. I walk past that house twice every day to and from <laughs> my car, you know, and, and when Robin Williams so untimely passed, there was a huge outpouring of like people leaving votive candles and teddy bears and you name it up against the fence of this house, oh, even man. though he hadn't been there in 30 years, I'm sure, you know, but yeah. still interesting. What's been your experience and your observations of not only just Boulder, but Colorado in general as a recording place? It's there's always been a lot of activity, a lot of creative people here and some really cool music has come out of here. But it's never really become a hub of anything. It's, Always a little of an outlying community, but doesn't mean there's not a lot of really great vital stuff going on here. You know, there way back when there was Caribou Ranch, um, which in its the day was one of those original kind of resort recording destinations, and it was an amazing place. Isn't that up for sale? It's actually been sold. I mean, the the studio hasn't been active in a very long time. Is this the one that burned? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Google Caribou Ranch, and I'll put some, I'll try to put some stuff in the show notes. There's a great history there. Jim Gersio, the original owner, was the uh, producer of Chicago and the Buckinghams and a bunch of other big bands. But the list of albums that were recorded up at Caribou Ranch is just astounding. This whole string of Eagles, Elton John, Super Tramp, Joe Walsh. It goes on and on and on. Crazy. Yeah. Where Where is that at? It's outside of Nederland, which is about 15, 20 miles up the canyon uh, above Boulder. Okay. So it's up along the uh, Indian Peaks Interesting. range. 
And what about uh, Denver proper? There's some really great studios in Denver. Some of them, uh, Colorado Sound especially, has been around for a long, long time. Super professional studio. I love working there. And then there's there. the, the Blasting Room? Blasting Room was up in Fort Collins. Fort Collins, okay. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know those guys as well, but I know they do. They crank out a lot of great yeah. stuff and are very active up there. Yeah. yeah, I've sent emails to the guys at the Blasting Room to do interviews, uh, guys. So if you want to respond, hint, that'd hint, be lovely to have hint, you on. <laughs> um, there's some newer rooms, even the newer ones that have been around, you know, eight or ten years. Uh, Mighty Fine Productions and Colin Bricker and his associates have a great studio. And then, of course, recent WCA guest David Glasser, who you know. Yeah. Has, of course, been on in David's a presence in the Colorado recording scene yeah, as well. Yeah, he moved here in the late 90s and has been kind of one of, if not the preeminent mastering engineer here kind of ever since then. Uh, there's some other great mastering engineers around, by the way, but he's certainly one of them. Now, let's go back a little bit because you also have a tie to David and Airshow. So right. tell me about that. Dave and I met through our mutual friend, Cooster McAllister, who owns the Record Plant Remote Truck. I'm a Cooster when he lived in Telluride, mm -hmm. Colorado, uh, back in the 70s and uh, helped start the uh, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, which is still going strong to this day. It's a pretty major event. It's a four-day-long festival that they had to cap at 10,000 people a long time ago just because the town is so tiny. You mm -hmm. just can't support a bigger influx than that. <laughs> it's uh, they, I think one year they booked Willie Nelson and 17,000 people showed up. And they were out of bread, milk, and water by Saturday afternoon. You know, something crazy like that happened. I wasn't there that year, but wow. So the town said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We got to we gotta find somewhere to We can need some lesser-known acts. Yeah, really. But Cooster um, helped start the festival and then moved back east and went to work for the record plant. We worked in the truck, in the, the remote truck with David Hewitt, and eventually bought the truck and then named the rights to the uh, name for the remote truck and has been running it ever since then very very that still exists oh yeah he's downscaled the truck a time or two and i think sometimes he just goes out independently and works in other people's trucks but he's a really really fine remote recording engineer and and he used to come back every few years to record the festival i knew him from colorado he would call me invite me to come down and help him engineer it and he met dave back east when they worked together on stuff where dave would hire him for NPR gigs that Dave had to do. So we all ended up out in Telluride together for a few years. And then one year Dave said, hey, I'm moving to Boulder. I was like, wow, really? He says, yeah, I got to get out of D.C., man. It's just driving me crazy. And and I started working kind of part-time there, helping him out a little bit. Used one of his rooms as a mix room when I could get in there. And then when he expanded, he built a couple mix rooms uh, on the other side of the building. And uh, I just moved into one. And I was there for 13 or 14 years. And that was my primary place, and it was a great little room. So you were up. under the umbrella of Airshow? Of Airshow, yeah. Okay. But I brought in my own work and also did work that came in through them. That Every once in a while, somebody would bring something to Dave to master, and he'd go, no, this mix really isn't very good. And I know a guy. Yeah, yeah, I know a guy, right. Right. So that worked out well, and I would bring my own clients in and work with them, and then I could just hand it off. I could just walk down the hall to Dave and go, okay, we're ready, and he would dive in. Kind of wow. dovetailed very nicely. So what was that room like based around? What was the, the technology at the time? Kind of a mixture of analog and digital. I've been a Pro Tools guy for a long time. I'm curious to ask you how you made the transition over, but uh, at some point. Well, we should talk about that because I'm kind of drifting back the other oh. way just because only for the, you know, the side note, I've been having a couple issues where I can't undo my edits. Oh, in, no. In Studio One. And I think it has to do with the amount of save as is that I've been doing. Uh, so I need to revisit it. But still, uh, I'm just... scared to death to switch platforms at this point, only because I'm so invested yeah. in the one. I like playing in the others just because it, if anything ever happens to Pro Tools and Avid, right. I feel like I have a place to go to. Yeah. And I yeah, still it's smart. It's really smart. I still do work in Studio One as well. Uh, uh, so, uh. But anyways. Um, so, yeah, based around uh, Pro Tools mixing platform. With a smattering of outboard gear, I got a 500 rack with kind of some pairs of EQs and different things in a summing box for a long time. I've just recently finally passed on the summing mixer thing and gone back inside and yeah, just do some insert paths when I need them. I've been into the UAD world for a while now. Uh, got a couple local people. Gannon is a friend of mine, and he's their, kind of their main rep these days. And uh, also, uh, they have a small R&D team in Boulder. Dave Tremblay and some other guys who were working on doing all the modeling for 
amps and did a bunch of different stuff they do is right in Boulder. Another place you could visit while you're here. Oh yeah. Yeah. But uh interesting. So, you know, plugins get better, engineers get complacent or lazy or <laughs> whatever it is that drives them back in the box. There's so many people working completely inside there these days. It's yeah. hard to argue, you know. Yeah, and whatever method people choose to work in, yeah, exactly. uh, the in the box thing economically works for me. Right. But um yeah, a lot of people doing it. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. But there's yeah, there's still a lot of people still working on consoles, too. Oh, absolutely. So that was the, the basis. The room was set up around that, and we eventually set it up for surround work, so we could do surround in there. Didn't have tons of call. Did some video work, did some post stuff for a few concerts and, and uh, documentaries about bands and stuff in there that was fun to play in that world. What was the, the tipping point of going into audio professionally for you? I'd moved to Colorado almost as fast as I could get out of the Midwest where I grew up. I grew up in Iowa. Grew up in I, Iowa? I grew up in Iowa, yeah. And uh, got out here by the time I was 20 and met some people, ended up joining a band, an existing band, and uh, we played around for a while, had some local success. But all the while we were doing this, I was getting kind of fascinated with, if I get a little sub-mixer and throw up a couple more mics, it'll sound better out front, you know? And eventually... Uh, a friend of ours had a, a TAC 3340 4-track. And I was like, hey, I'm going to record the gig and I can do the board mix and, a, and an audience mic. And I just kind of got into that world. And eventually I just slid off the stage. I just said, you know what? I'd re rather be out front mixing. It was almost like switching instruments for me. Yeah. Didn't feel that different. And I just got maybe just my geeky nature, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. It just worked for me. And I started doing that. And then the whole band... Had some really amazing luck early on. We were playing at a little out-of-the-way place up in the mountains in Rollinsville at a place called The Stage Stop, a Sunday afternoon show so all our friends with kids could come out and see the band play and stuff. And Dan Fogelberg and Carol King walk in and sit down and listen to a set and then get up and leave. And we're like, whoa, that was cool. And we had known Dan because he lived in the area, but we didn't know Carol from The Man in the Moon. And a couple months later... Carol calls up one of the guys in the band and says, would you guys consider being my backup band? And she hired us. She was just kind of, she'd been through the whole LA thing. She was kind of sick of the, the scene out there. She'd moved to Idaho, was living in a cabin in the woods and kind of, you know, unplugged from the, from the scene a lot, but she still made records and or every once in a while would tour a little bit. So we became her kind of our backup band and ended up going out to L.A., making a couple of records with her and did a couple of tours with her. And that was my intro to kind of the bigger world of all kinds of audio, live sound and the studio. I mean, we worked at A&M Studio and the Sound Labs and talked to the other engineers there. They say, oh, yeah, Steely Dan was in Cutting Asia last week. Crazy, you know, time, wow. late, late 70s, you know, mid late 70s, I guess. But I just got to see I didn't know enough to actually be an engineer at that time for right. these projects but i got to sit there and take it all in and see what kind of the how the pace of things went what the demeanor of and how you took care of you know working your way through a session you know and it's very enlightening and, and the workflow the whole workflow and everything and it just just wetted my whistle i was like okay this is it it's interesting your comments about uh about uh, carol king yeah uh, just it's interesting to me how and I say this with all due respect to my friends in, in Los Angeles, no disrespect meant, but people kind of gather to a hub for a while mm -hmm. and it becomes a thing. And then yeah. people kind of break from the hub Sure, and they start to move elsewhere. Yeah. Right now it seems that a lot of people have made the big move from Los Angeles to Nashville. Yep. For example, I mean, I can, yep. I've got a ton of friends that are doing it. Oh, yeah. And I wonder, like, at some point, will there be a point at which people go, I got to get out of Nashville? Yeah, the bathtub's full here. It's yeah. going to start spilling over into other places, you know? And, you know, we do have these places like Nashville, Los Angeles, New York, these hubs of, of recording. But it's the lesser-known hubs that I'm always intrigued by and how sure. the ecosystems work there. And yeah. Do you have any comments about the ecosystem of Colorado? And I don't know that I know it as well as some other people might. I kind of have gotten into my my little niche and kind of stuck with it. I mean, I've been at it for 40 years now. And yeah. I'm just not as venturous as out there in the clubs every night, you know, meeting people as I used to be. But I think there's vibrant scenes in a lot of different areas, you know. I mean, I lived in Austin, Texas for a while, and that's a huge talent pool and amazing, you know, uh, 
music mecca. On the Austin thing, we were talking earlier. Can you tell me the name of the documentary we were talking about? Yeah, it's it's a documentary called The Shopkeeper. It's around my very, very good friend Mark Hallman and a studio he and I started down in Austin called Congress House Studio. It's been around for 35 years now. Okay. Yeah, it's a long-running place. It's a very humble little studio, but just a ton of people have gone through there. He and I moved down there at the same time. We actually went down there to do a recording project with Carol and fell in love with the town. Thought, this is worth checking out. So we moved our families down there and and put together this little studio, yeah, in a house kind of out on the far south edge of town. Used to be the far south edge of town. Right. Town's huge now. Well, I'll put the uh, the name of the documentary in in, in the show notes, and you you could send me a link. It's a very cool little documentary. It's all about, as he kind of says in the preface for the whole thing, it's like everybody's making music, nobody's making a living. Where do we go from here? Let's talk about that about making a living in, in the Colorado in general. Cost of living is going up over time. You know, yeah, quite Boulder a bit. used to be like kind of almost like. A, a little college town, right? Very much so. It was, yeah, not, not very much an artist community, and it's certainly been, all the prices have gone way, way up. It's becoming a little baby Austin or San Francisco or somewhere, you know. There's a lot of tech industry around. Google just built a new campus there. The pot know. industry, of course, has an impact on Colorado. It's huge on the impact, yeah. In mostly positive ways, at least from the people I can yeah. see involved in it, you know. It's kind of like a new little gold rush. For some people that would decide to get into it in the business end of it, kind of surviving. Well, so how have you survived over the years? I just, I guess I'm just stubborn enough that I'd never even considered giving up on what I do. And I just made it work. It's like that old, you ever hear the story about the old jazz musician? Someone said, man, how do you have a long sustaining career in music? And the guy just looked him in the eye and says, never learn to do anything else. It's kind of like, if, if you need to, you'll make it work. And I've always just found one avenue or another. I still go back out. I haven't done it in a little while now, but I've done live sound really selectively for some, you know, every once in a while. Someone asked me, and I, someone who musically asked, like, okay, this would be fun for a couple of weeks. So, and also, I think the act of sticking around. Yeah, absolutely. And you got you to be around. You got to show your face. You got to do solid work over and over and over again and connect with people, you know, mm-hmm. it's all kind of a word of mouth industry as far as I can tell. And just, you know, moving, I lived here, we live in Boulder in the seventies, moved to Austin for nine years, moved back. And it was a tough transition because I'd been gone long enough that people forget. Yeah. Not to mention, I cut my teeth in a lot of ways down in Austin. That was my big school for recording. And that's where I got serious about it. And did a ton of work down there with a bunch of great artists and uh, really kind of found my footing, you know. So I came back up here and I kind of had to reestablish myself. So I I literally commuted back to Austin for four or five years. I'd go back down there six, seven times a year to make a record. Kind of the normal pattern, at least at that time, was week tracking, week overdubs, week of mixing. Three weeks, it's done. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't piecemeal like it is these days, you know, or... Well, I've got a yeah. B3 part coming in from Saskatchewan, and, uh, you yeah. know. I had a client a few, a uh, couple of weeks ago, like, we had, we spent one day tracking a song with a band. I did a mix at mm-hmm. the end of the day, which was not like me to do. Yeah. But everything was there to do it. Mm-hmm. And the mix, everybody was, like, happy with the mix. People signed up on the parts. And I was like, oh, great. It's done. A few weeks go by, and I get the email. Well, I got a pipe organ part from a friend on the East Coast. <laughs> I want to see. I want you to see if you can fit it in. Is, are these things ever done? You know, come on. That's the the beauty and the danger of the digital world. You know, is there's no there's no end to it. You just have to say enough is enough. Have there been times when it's just been like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like where the gigs run thin, or have the gigs always been somewhat consistent? I've been really, really fortunate like that. But no, there there are certain times where they did. I remember certain one time early on in Austin, and I already had a kid at this point. Okay. Where 
I've been doing nice stuff, making records, doing a few like label projects, you know, and then it just dried up for literally like six months. It dried up and I just had to figure out what to do in the meantime. And I went back to the only other skill set I have at all, which is cooking. I went back and jumped online in a restaurant for probably four or five of those months. And and then one day I got a call and next week I was in Dallas making a record for MCA. You know, it just one day the drought was over. But in the meantime, I had to just do something. I had to put food on the table. I'm curious about how you emotionally feel about that. Not now, but at mm-hmm. that time, you know, did you ever go through an identity crisis of, well, I can't, I'm a recording engineer. I don't, I don't do this. Or, or did you just have to table that idea? I'm a little more pragmatic about it than that. Okay. Having grown up in a the more rural Midwest. Up. Yeah. It's like, you got a little more of a get her done attitude, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and, and if you need to do something else in the meantime, I didn't really have a problem doing that, but I knew I wasn't going to stick with that. It was just a uh, an interim thing, you know. As soon as things picked up, I just, uh, you know, it's that, that thing about when you got a burning passion for something, you just know, that's it. That's what I'm doing. And it's so hard to convey that to someone new who says, this is what I want to do. And it's like, okay, are you really sure? And I also, you know, in, in the bigger sense, I've just learned to always kind of lead my life so I'm never spending the last dollar in the bank. There's always a little buffer there. Just yeah. have to, if this is the way, I, the lifestyle I want, then I got to keep my means within that. You know, I got to I gotta conduct things so that I can make that work. And it, you know, the income floats up, the income floats down. It's never a steady paycheck, but it averages out in the longer run. You Has know? your strategy over the years just been to keep the expenses kind of in in check and just common sense things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And just try and live within my means, you know, which is tough sometimes. James Tuttle here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I'm going to pause for a second. I want to tell you about the uh, AT4080 from Audio-Technica, one of our longtime sponsors, longtime supporters. They make this great mic. It's a fan-powered bi-directional ribbon microphone, and we have samples of it over at workingclassaudio.com. If you click on over to workingclassaudio.com, like I just said, and if you look at WCA bonus content, there is a tab that says WCA Audio Technica mic samples underneath that. If you click on that, scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see it says Audio Technica 40 series mic samples. And that's where we have some downloadable vocal, acoustic guitar, and electric guitar samples. Uh, with some 40 series mics side by side and the 4080 is in that group and you can check it out those are uh, 24-bit 48k volume matched no compression or equalization and you can check those out and uh, see what you think develop your own opinion about it but uh, i'm a big fan of the 4080 great mic and uh, there's a lot of ribbon microphones out there in the world to choose from you should check this one out if you're considering one so head on over to audio-technica.com and until then Let's get over to James Tuttle here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. On a day-to-day basis, are you financially somewhat, you know, cautious? Like, well, you know, I don't need to go stop and get a big coffee here. I could just go make coffee at home. Is it? Are you that down to the detail? Or, you know, that uh, there's, there's times I have been certainly. Yeah, these days I'm not quite so afraid of. Well, should I bring a sandwich from home, or can I actually like walk down the street, right, get right. lunch, you know? Right, because some people are in that position where they, oh, absolutely, they, every single penny counts. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not quite that close to the bone, right, these days. But I certainly have been at times and had to watch things, you know. But it was all just to make it work, to make yeah. what I've chosen to do be viable for me, you know. You made a comment about when you came back from Austin, mm-hmm. things had kind of dried up here for you. So, you so much con- dried up as just nobody quite knew. I kind of had to reestablish myself and show them what I'd learned in the, in the meantime. I remember coming back and coming to a friend's studio, and the first thing I wanted to do was check the alignment on his tape machine. And he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? We just had that done six months ago. You know, And I'm like, yeah, but I'm in here today. And I kind of, that was what you yeah. do. You come in and you make sure things are right before you start the session. And Right. That's like saying, well, I tuned the guitar six months ago. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, well, do you have any thoughts about people relocating and trying to reestablish themselves? Like, I mean, I've been in the Bay Area since 1988. Yeah. And the idea of leaving oh, at sure. some point has entered my mind, you yeah. know, and it, my wife and I have discussed, you know, well, when the kids graduate from high school and go yeah. to college. 
you know, should we leave? And I always think, hmm, it's quite expensive to live here. And in my older age, I don't know if that's a yeah. smart move. So when you relocate, what are some of the thoughts that you have on that? What, what do you need to do to, to establish yourself? Well, certainly the networking is huge, you know, go out and make yourself known and, you know, meet everybody you can and just be willing to get out there and put yourself out in the new situation. Certainly if you know anybody or have a friend through a friend who can give you some entrees to a new location, you know, moving back to Boulder wasn't quite like that. It wasn't moving someplace cold. I mean, I know people who have, and you know, it takes a while. It takes bare minimum two, three years to kind of get back to the point where you're known and, and starting to work again, you know, sometimes because it's, it's the good old boy network, you know, it's everybody calls the people they know to get yeah. things done. Right. And, and I, I always imagine that there's a sense of like people not, be, not being offended, but just kind of being a little cautious of like, like I'm sure all the folks in Nashville who have been there for years are like, who are oh, all sure. these like people moving here from LA? Oh yeah. And Absolutely. how does that work? Right. Well, it's, 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 it's hard when you've started with a smaller pool to work in, to not be a little territorial. Yeah. And be protective of what you got. You yeah. know, I, I know certain studio owners who, once they get an engineer that's doing good, they like to kind of keep them under their wing, which I think is totally the wrong thing to do. Yeah. You know, I think they you really got to, especially if you're younger, you really got to move around and experience a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different setups, a lot of different things to kind of get your footing. You know? it's, it's interesting too. I think that you can being the, the person on the, in the town, like speaking from experience, like recently, uh, uh, former WC, I guess, Michael James mm -hmm. moved to the Bay area yeah. from LA. Oh, sure. And rather than people like, I, I can imagine that, you know, as people meet him and go, Oh, okay. We got somebody from LA here. It's like, I don't know if he's experienced that. My experience with him has been to learn mm -hmm. what he brings to the table. Cause he's a very experienced guy uh, on top of, you know, being a great engineer. Yeah, um, he's got some. He's got some. But he's got some grades. ideas that are fresh to the Bay Area, and I like that. I like that bringing, stirring the pot. Sure. Well, that's that's the best thing you can offer in a new situation is something fresh or a different take on a, something. You know, you come from a different world or a different ecosystem ecosystem than than the local one, and if you can offer that without being threatening to what already exists there and say, this is just a new addition and something really cool. And I'm willing to share this, you know, what I've learned from working elsewhere, then, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a uh, zero sum game. It can be, everyone can gain something from it. Yeah. But you've got to be willing to be a partner up with people and, and, and work collaboratively with people and, and, and not always see people up. as a threat or absolutely. Not everybody's going to just go to one person all the time. Right, um, right. Katie Tavini and I talked about this in, in my la last interview, talking about engineers who are territorial. Yes. Who get offended when clients go to other engineers. Yeah. And I'm always perplexed by that idea. Yeah, I've, I've had similar things. And, uh, you know, I, I literally had been booked for a mix on something and it came time and it's like the tracking engineer wouldn't give him the tapes, wouldn't give him the files. Yeah. It's like, but... You know, it was that unspoken, but I thought I was going to mix it thing. It's like, well, no, we already hired this other guy. And, you know, some people get really attached to the project. I, I love getting stuff in from other engineers. I learn stuff from how people track things. I love handing stuff off to other people. You know, I just finished up an album with the uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters that Mark Needham mixed and i was like yes some cat from you know some notable guy from la oh, so gonna, you tracked it i tracked and Mark's it mixing. at the e-town studio oh. oh yeah and then and then he just finished mixing it they just just came out in the last couple of weeks hmm. and he did a killer job on it you know it sounds amazing wow it was fun to kind of hear someone else do something with your tracks interesting yeah so now when you work do you have a setup at home do you have a place you go to or do you just always work out of e-town no i i move my my own personal stuff from uh air show home and did a little setup there. Uh, my partner and I just found a place outside of town just about six years ago and moved out there and took over the garage. Most of it's a music room for her. She's a, uh, a pretty talented, classically trained pianist. Okay. We, have a, we have a Steinway B sitting in there. Oh, wow. Pretty serious piano. And I carved out a little corner of the room for, for me for mixing and editing and work and stuff. But I do a fair amount of stuff out of there. 
I'll actually mix a lot of the show at, at home and then take it back in um, to the E-Town studio. And Nick, uh, the host of the show, he and I, he's an incredibly tam- talented multi-instrumentalist uh, himself. And uh, we go through the music part of the show and kind of touch up all the mixes and stuff and make everybody look as good as we can. Hmm. And then Helen, his wife, and our other engineer, Ryan White, uh, sit down with the overall content and chop up the dialogue, the intros, the outros, and snip the show up until they get that, fit that magic, you know, one hour. F- 59 window. minutes, 53 seconds or something? Whatever that is, yeah. Huh. They have to hit that every every week, yeah. You continue to do work for other people outside sure. of E-Town. Yeah, yeah. How do you continue to get work? Is it purely by word of mouth? It's pretty much at this point, it really is. Yeah, I'm, I guess I've been lucky enough to be at it long enough that I have a little bit of a of a reputation, you know, and yeah, somebody still likes what I do. So I feel fortunate about that. And some of it, there's work that comes in through E-Town, the people that want to use the studio or they know that I'm affiliated with E-Town and they ask me where, where we can track. And uh-huh. that's kind of my home base these days. So it works both ways. They hand me some work. I bring my own projects in to work there. So that's a nice arrangement. It's a great arrangement. Yeah. Cause then it's a place you can rely on. It's funny, I you know, I jumped around as an independent engineer for many, many years and all I took around was, you know, a pair of loud, a pair of monitors I knew and a few microphones and just set up shop wherever. And I learned how to make that work. But yeah, there's nothing like having a home base where you just walk in and you know exactly where things are and sound wise. Once you kinda got your room set up, you know, it's 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 a, it's a nice to have that comfort zone, you know. You listen to the show, so you know I asked this. Do you have any habits or things that are important to you to do daily or to, to keep you focused on stuff? I'm, I'm slowly getting smart about that. Uh, just taking care, better care of myself. Mm. Pretty, pretty militant about eating well, getting a decent amount of sleep. And, sleep. Uh, Sleep's good. Sleep's always good. <laughs> I just heard some great fresh air interview, with Terry Gross and some guy who's like a sleep research scientist and, he basically said that idea of you'll catch up on sleep later says that doesn't happen. You can't catch up on sleep later. You can oversleep to make up for it in some ways, but it's it. I forget how exactly how he described it in terms of you know your brain chemistry and what's going on there. And he's, he basically said, you know, it's a bank loan <laughs> that's hard to repay. We don't ever discuss that. Sleep is important. Oh, very important. Yeah. To. I mean, you know, remaining sharp. And I certainly spent way too many years doing the late night and all night sessions, just trying to get things done. You know, you're, you're younger. The people you're working with are younger. They're excited about stuff. You haven't quite learned the diminishing returns thing yet. I mean, I, I literally remember being, I think we were finished. It was the last night of mixing a Joe Ely record. And we had to have it done. The deadline was there. The studio was booked the next day. I got home just in time to fix my kid breakfast. I mean, you know, walked in the door at like quarter to seven in the morning or something. It was like, ugh, I don't want to ever do this again. That was that was the the ultimate like pushing too hard, you know. I wonder if the industry is changing in a direction that is more conducive to getting sleep. I don't know if that's just me. I mean, I made a conscious decision long ago just to say, you know, I don't work in these particular hours and I've experimented with that yeah i don't know if that's just me because i talked to some other engineers who were like oh you're so lucky i'm a slave to my clients yeah and i just don't like to work that way i don't either i don't i can't i can't do really good solid work beyond you know these days it's more like 10 hours is my max yeah And, and then and even that sometimes pushing it you know if we're on a roll with something and we just want to get to a a a logical stopping point. Sure. We're going to push through a little bit, you know, but, uh, I mean, you know, maybe if the Rolling Stones ever called me, which yeah, really. that, I don't know if that'll ever happen in my yeah. lifetime. Yeah. You know, I would stay up and sure. And bend the rules a little bit, but for day-to-day clients, I kind of like, I've almost toyed with the idea of saying from this hour to this hour of the day, mm-hmm. I'm this much. And once you cross that threshold, my rate doubles. I've heard numerous guest years that just kind of said, no, these are the hours I work. If you want me, here I am, you know, and I t- so admire that to just have some really clear boundaries. It took me a long time to figure that out, but um, I'm getting better and better at it, you know. 
Well, and see, I'm always willing to show up incredibly early at a studio mm. to set up. And Just to get prepped. It's always nice to feel like you, you're you really sitting there waiting for them when they walk in the door and everything's dialed. You know, you're oh, yeah. ready to go. Otherwise, I get panicked if I, if me and the band show up at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Oh, I hate that. That is tough. Yeah. So the sleep thing is, is always big for me. And getting some exercise, doing something outside of the studio is huge for me. You know, just having a life. These days I've got room. I actually have a garden out back of the place. And getting out and putting my fingers in the dirt now and then yeah. feels great. You know what I find tough here in Colorado? Every time I come here every Thanksgiving is the altitude kicks my ass. Oh, yeah. Even just going up the stairs at my sister-in-law's house. Oh, yeah. I get to the top of the stairs. I'm like, <gasps> anybody, anybody comes out here from sea level, especially singers, there's endless stories about people going up Caribou Ranch and go for a high note and just pass out. Yeah. They have to keep, you know, most of the venues here have an oxygen tank in the back room somewhere just in case. Even I, living at, you know, 5,200 feet or whatever it is, I go up to up into the mountains somewhere a couple thousand more feet, especially to Telluride or somewhere that's eight or 9,000 feet. I feel it. I don't know if there's any science to back this up, but is there any ideas of, like, if you're mixing here, is it different? Good question. Ergo molecules are moving through thinner air. Okay. It's kind of like playing baseball here, you know, going for a center field fence. Yeah. Thinner air, you know, and, and that changes with temperature and humidity and all kinds of stuff. Sure. I mean, I know I have friends who are like great system techs for li doing live PA work, and they are out there checking the, the weather and the humidity and stuff and tweaking the PA as the sun sets and the temperature goes down because it things shift. So it's got to be affecting the studio somewhat, even if you got a, a good air conditioning system and you know some climate control in there. Good question. I don't. I don't. Know, I don't know how to quantify that quite. But I. I don't know. It just occurred to me. I'm just you know maybe the air moves differently. Therefore, and maybe your ears. Like I wonder if I tried to mix here versus mixing at sea level. Yeah. Something I'll have to dig into. It's yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. It's a slightly more technical question than. Maybe where either of us live, but yeah. uh, I know that we haven't gone over your entire career. But is there anything that you'd want to talk about that I may have left out? I love just being able to kind of share my story, just like you've been doing with all your guests over these last years. I think it's amazing what you cover with people and how kind of insightful are about you know. Just I give you great kudos for that. I when oh. I found your podcast, I think it was John Cunaberti. What episode was that? Three or four or five or something way, way, that way back there. Super early. Yeah. And I just went, oh, this is great. Because it wasn't a geeky gear talk thing. It was all about real life and doing what we love to do, you know, yeah. and making it work. Um, I just feel like I've been really fortunate and stubborn enough to kind of, you know, stick it out and make it work for myself. Yeah. Certainly moving around a little bit helped me getting down to Austin and getting into a, a bigger music scene and cutting my teeth down there, not to mention getting schooled about great roadhouse rock and roll with some of the people I worked with down there. It's like, oh, this is what real down and dirty music feels like, you know. Did some great people. I worked with Joe Ely and and his. I, I saw that you worked with Joe Ely. We we I did live stuff with him and studio stuff with him for a number of years, and uh, just had a great time with him. And he's just like a consummate artist kind of texas singer songwriter kind of a guy and his old buddies jimmy dore gilmore and butch hancock yep. that band the flatlanders worked with all them and and uh just a bunch of i worked on some blues projects for antone's records down there did a, a record with uh james cotton and a record with matt guitar murphy did you ever work with charlie sexton oh yeah i know charlie i don't know him really well but i know him i made a couple records with his brother will oh will and the kill the, will and the kill that was uh, that was the record. That was the going to Dallas. That was the end of my restaurant stint. Was going to Dallas to make Will and the Kill. No kidding. That's that's what broke the the dry spell. Wow. Was that very record? Yeah. It's been a number of years since I've been to Austin. Need to make a trip down there. You should. Where can people find out more about you? Oh man, I've still got whatever they have left up on allmusic.com. I kind of let my website go. I just it was kind of a placeholder for me. It wasn't. Yeah. 
there was no traffic through there or anything. It was just a place to come look at stuff. Whether they're in Colorado or not, they can always go through E-Town and find you. Yeah. E-Town.org. E-Town.org, yeah. It's a great place to, you know, look up. I mean, I've been doing, mixing the shows there for, like I said, like 20 years now. That's a huge pool of stuff right there. The, the list of people we get to work with just in the course of a year is pretty astounding. And do you find that you're doing more mixing these days than you are tracking? Yeah, I still kind of lean toward that. Just the fact that I do all the E-Town shows is a pile. We try and do, we don't do a show every week, even though it's a syndicated weekly show. We kind of mix in old reruns with them. We try and have at least a healthy mix over half. So we do probably 30 shows a year of new content. But there's a lot of content. Oh, ton of content. I mix usually about 10 songs for every show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's probably content that's not actually released. Yeah, there's there's some extra stuff. They just put up a, extra stuff through the E-Town website, and I'm not sure if they include any of that with the podcast or not. They might. Would you say that E-Town is kind of Colorado's version of Austin City Limits? Yeah, well, you know, it didn't start out to be a video-based thing, but it, it has included that. It's never been a syndicated TV show, but it's it's very kind of music-centric like that and tries to showcase local and, you know talent from all over hmm. you know the you know, the unique thing about e-town is they're always trying to engage the artists and have a conversation with them about what's happening in their life what they're doing they're really about kind of social responsibility and trying to contribute something to your community they give an award away every show to someone who's doing something really cool in their local community oh wow and um and it it runs the entire gamut i mean there's the guy in portland who gives free haircuts to the homeless one day a week and the the kids in some school that raised money to put a well in some village in Africa and the guys who are cleaning up the coastline of Alaska on their f- spare time. I mean, it just, it really is impressive and, and very inspiring to see people that just see a problem and just say, I can do something about that. And they just get busy and do it. You know, they're not hmm. waiting around for a, a giant grant of, of some sort, you know, they, they just, just get said, out and make it happen. They just get out and make it happen. Yeah. So that's a big part of what E-Town is trying to do is just raise some awareness around social issues and use music as that connective tissue because music is kind of a universal language, you know? Yeah. It crosses all kinds of boundaries and borders. Well, thank you so much for meeting me and driving out here. It's such a pleasure to to, uh, get a chance uh, to hang out with you. Yeah. And have a great uh, stay here. Yeah. Thank you, James. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, man. James Tuttle here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I love doing those from coffee shops. That's just like so in the moment, very casual, a little noisy, but you know, whatever. We get some coffee and we get to chat. So that's it. We are out of time. So we want to, of course, thank everybody, uh, the crew here at WCA. That would include, of course, Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. Also want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, and Focal Monitors. And want to thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Until next time, everybody, you know how it works here. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.